The following is produced by Artisan Church. Welcome to the Artisan Church Podcast, a weekly broadcast of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. To learn more about Artisan Church or to support the ministry, visit www.artisanchurch.com. Well, today we're concluding a three-week series that we've been in uh, called The Person of Christ. And in the the weeks leading up to today, we've explored two different aspects of Jesus' ministry. The first week, we talked about Christ as a teacher. And last week, we talked about Christ the prophet. And today, we're going to conclude by looking at Christ the king. And it just so happens that today is also the day that many Christians celebrate the feast of Christ the king, which is sometimes known as Reign of Christ Sunday. And it's almost like we planned this, but... um, We are concluding our series on the last day of the liturgical year. Next week is the first Sunday of Advent, and that's when the liturgical calendar starts again. And so today's kind of like a New Year's Eve party or something. But we're not going to do any of the things that you do at a New Year's Eve party, so forget I said that. But I was thinking um, this week that each of these roles that we've been looking at Jesus playing during this series... As we've, as we've gone through it, each role is a little bit more difficult for us to grasp than the one that came before it, right? I mean, we can all get our minds around what it means to be a great teacher. And we even talked about some of the things that make a good teacher or a bad teacher. And um, we, we ended up deciding, I think we had fairly broad agreement, that uh, Mr. Jesus was a pretty good teacher. Um, and then after I made that joke, uh, Arian came up to me afterward and she said, you know that really would have been better if you called him Mr. Christ. <laughs> that was his last name. And she was right. So thank you, Arian, for improving my sermon jokes. Um, <laughs> but we know what a good teacher looks like. So thinking about Jesus as a teacher is pretty easy for us. And um, the prophet one makes maybe not quite as much sense, but for those of us who are um, you know, familiar with the religious language of the Judeo-Christian culture, which would be mostly all of us, uh, we understand what a prophet is. Um, maybe not as simple and clear as teacher, but we, we get it. But a king, that's really hard for us, I think, as American Christians to understand um, in terms of how it affects our faith. We obviously don't have a king. The closest thing we get to understanding the concept of monarchy is reading the British tabloids, right? Or, or maybe like watching a royal wedding on TV or something. Um, I don't happen to find that remotely interesting, but I know lots of people do. So, And, you know, even though we've read lots of stories and seen lots of movies that talk about the concept of kingdoms of old and kings and queens and knights and damsels in distress and all that stuff, we, we don't necessarily translate that into a spiritual or religious truth that we can grasp uh, really easily. And yet, the concept of Jesus as a king is entirely biblical, Throughout the New Testament, you see Jesus referred to as a king. In fact, there's a number of different titles that are assigned to him in various places in the New Testament that use the word king. He's called the the king of Israel, king of the Jews, king eternal, king of kings, king of the ages, ruler of the kings of the earth. So the concept of Jesus as a king is quite biblical. And so as people who 
look to the Bible as our source of uh, inspiration and guidance in our spiritual lives. It's a concept that we definitely ought to get our heads around. And so I want to talk about Jesus as a king in two different ways today. The first way that I want to talk about it is uh, to look at what it meant for Jesus' early followers, all of them uh, Jews steeped in their own religious heritage and uh, cultural history, to, to call Jesus a king. What did it mean for Jesus' first disciples to think of him as a king? That's the first way we want to look at it. And the second way, of course, is, is that I want to talk about what it means for us to regard Jesus as a king. Again, it's something that may not come totally naturally to us, so what, what are we going to do with that? So first, let's talk a little bit about the, the, the first one, which is uh, Jesus as the king of Israel, king of the Jews. And the history of the Jewish monarchy is um, actually really significant theologically, in my opinion. Um, in other words, the, the fact that the people of Israel, the, the, the people who were around when Jesus was around, um, the fact that they even knew what it meant to have a king is something that actually goes deeply into all that they saw of themselves as a people uh, and as a nation, and also how they see themselves interacting with God. The story of how uh, Israel first came to have a king is told in the Old Testament, and it's in the, uh, the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 8. And if you'd like to uh, follow along with this with me, you're welcome to grab a red Bible from under your chairs and turn to page 218. Um, and if you brought one with you, it's, uh, oh, I don't know, about that far in. Now, up until this point, the nation of Israel had been governed by a series of judges. And the last great judge of the people of Israel was Samuel. And when Samuel grew old, he tried to pass this judgeship on to his sons, and uh, it didn't, didn't work. And so this is what happened in 1 Samuel chapter 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. Yet his sons did not follow in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, You are old, and your sons do not follow in your ways. Appoint for us then a king to govern us, like other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to govern us. Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Just as they have done to me from the day I brought them out of Egypt to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so also they are doing to you. Now then, listen to their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel reported all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. 
He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his courtiers. He will take one-tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his courtiers. He will take your male and female slaves and the best of your cattle and donkeys and put them to his work. He will take one-tenth of all your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. They said, no, but we are determined to have a king over us so that we may also be like other nations and that our king may govern us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, listen to their voice and set a king over them. Samuel then said to the people of Israel, each of you return home. So the people of Israel demanded this monarchy. And why did they do that? Because they wanted to be like the other nations around them. You have the entire course of the history of the people of God changed based on some socio-political peer pressure. And note the emphasis on war, by the way. Not only on the people's part who say, we want a king who will lead us into battle and fight our battles for us but also on the part of Samuel, who said, guess what? If you have a king, a lot of you are going to be drafted, and your sons are not going to come home. And so, so there's this, this sort of insidious war mentality that informs this decision as well. Remember that, that the people of Israel are no stranger to war, but all, all up to this point, it had been God who led the people into battle. And sometimes the prophets or the priests would, would support that, you know, and, and call on God to help them in battle and so forth. But now the people want a king to lead them into battle. And so they, as God analyzes the situation, have rejected him as king and chosen one of their own to take God's place. And so the people insist and they demand their king. Oh, and by the way, all the things that Samuel said would happen, they all happened. It was the, the Jewish monarchy was not an overwhelmingly good experience. And in fact, within four generations of this monarchy, the nation had split. And there was a divided monarchy and a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. We've talked about all that history before. And so that's the history behind the Jewish monarchy. And, and that was what was in the back of people's minds when Jesus came on the scene. I wonder if you remember last week when I told you uh, the story of the feeding of the 5,000, when we were talking about Jesus as a prophet, and that after he had performed this sign, this miracle, and fed the 5,000 people um, with just a few fishes and loaves, that the people immediately said, this is the prophet that that was foretold of old. Remember I said that last week? And so we connected Jesus to Israel's greatest prophet, Moses. It's interesting to think that the very next verse in that narrative in John chapter 6 says, verse 15, when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And so not only are they connecting him to Moses, their greatest prophet, but um, we know that by descent he's connected to David, their greatest king. 
and the people are ready to crown him when he performs this miracle. This is how it goes in the New Testament, by the way. The stories of Jesus and his followers, it's like miracle, 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 healing, healing, good stuff, smart teaching. All the people, you know, are, he's got these throngs of followers. And then all of a sudden he says, like, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no place in the kingdom of heaven. And then suddenly it's like him and the 12 disciples again. <laughs> right? <laughs> Whoa, I got to go, you know? So they want, at this point, though, it was, one of the, it was one of the good times with Jesus. They wanted to make him their king. Um, I think they're about ten verses away from the other thing happening, actually. Um, if you read through John 6, I'm pretty sure that's where that other thing I said happened. Uh, and then you also, there's a famous story about Jesus' triumphal, triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Remember riding on the donkey? Um, and it's fulfilling all these prophecies from the Old Testament about, you know, the, that your king will come in on a donkey's colt. And, and they put their coats down for him, and they wave the palm fronds, and they, you know, say, Hosanna in the highest, and this is a very royal ceremony, right? And so the people at times in the New Testament really want to make him a king. And it's not that they had the wrong idea, because obviously, I mean, th- today I'm talking about Christ the king. I, I agree with them that Jesus was the king, uh, that he was the Messiah, that he was the descendant of David, that was foretold in lots of different uh, Old Testament prophecies. In fact, one of today's lectionary readings is um, from Jeremiah 23, I think it is. Yeah, Jeremiah 23, that we looked at when we were doing the Jeremiah series. Remember the, the branch of David thing where, where there was a prophecy that, that from the line of David would come another king, a great king? You know, I actually do believe that this is, the, all these things point to Jesus as a king. And so the people had it right, kind of, which is that is such our condition. We have it right, kind of. They just had the, the, the wrong idea about what it meant for Jesus to be their king. Because at that point, you know, the, the, the salad days of King David were long behind them, right? And now we're in the Roman Empire, and they're a conquered people, three times over, I think, at this point. And they have a kind of king, in the Roman Empire, a, a client king, King Herod, right? But he was a puppet of the emperor, right? He's like the Darth Vader <laughs> of his day, <laughs> right? Because of the emperor. Um, <laughs> I just watched Star Wars with my son this past, past couple of weeks, so, like, I know all the names and stuff now. I feel like, I, like I'm becoming more of a, a nerd. But. So, but they have King Herod, right? This, this puppet king, this client king, but, and he's Jewish, but he's really in the pocket of the Roman Empire, and he oppresses his people. And so at this point, all the, all the devout Jews are anticipating a Messiah, a king who will come and restore the throne of David to its glory, who, someone who will overthrow King Herod, who will lead them into battle and conquer their conquerors and send into exile those who have sent them into exile. This is the kind of king that, that the people wanted. And that's not really what they got. The picture of the king they got is in Matthew 27. And if you'd like to, I don't I think I put this on there, but it, it happens to be page uh, 810. This is the king that, that they got. Matthew 27, 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarter, and they gathered the whole cohort around him. They stripped him 
and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting some thorns into a crown, they put it on his head. They put a reed in his right hand and knelt before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. After mocking him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. And looking ahead to verse 37, over his head, they put the charge against him which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. So Jesus' disciples got their king, but it was not at all what they had expected, what they had anticipated, what they had hoped for. Kind of like Samuel said originally. So that's Jesus as the king of Israel. But as is always our challenge when we look at the Bible, we need to try to figure out a way that translates what we've learned into something that applies to our life. And so if we're going to talk about Christ as a king, I think it makes sense to ask the question, what does that mean? What does that look like for Jesus to be our king? And this is a tough one because, as I said before, we Americans are not accustomed to having a king. In fact... We have, a, you know, sort of a poor track record of submitting to kings, right? I mean, the, the, if you know American history, you know that the original Tea Party was much more of a party, like throwing stuff, than it was a party like a political party, right? That's how we respond to kings. You want to tax us? Okay. That's the American way. But, but this actually goes way beyond politics. It's not just that we don't want to have a king. It's not about taxation without representation. Do you remember what I said about originally Israel's demand for a king, that it's something that goes deeply into who they saw themselves as a people and how they saw themselves as a nation and how they see themselves relating to God? I think that same thing is true for us when we ponder Jesus as a king in a different way. It's the same concept. See, we are so deeply convinced that the world revolves around us as individuals. That the idea of submitting our entire existence to, to something other than our own wants and desires at a given moment is, is completely foreign to us. It's, it's practically un-American to say that you would submit to something other than yourself. We are the rugged individuals. And so if I were a bullet point kind of preacher, I would probably now list all the different ways that we need to submit to Jesus as our king, uh, you know, morally and politically and um, in our marriages and, and all that stuff. And you would all dutifully write it down like in your bulletins or in like the, the spaces that I left in the outline or whatever. But that's not really who I am. And besides, don't you think we ought to really not break it down bit by bit? Isn't the whole point of having a king, if you're going to have one, that you submit your entire life to him? The problem is that, that that requires us to let go of the illusion that we have that we're all little kings with our kingdoms. And the way we define our kingdom is anywhere where everybody listens to us. And if there's somebody who doesn't listen to us, well, then they must be in their own little kingdom. 
And the other thing is that it, it involves making a lifelong commitment to something, to somebody. And we're not, we're not so good at that. We're not good at that with relationships, and we are definitely not good at that with um, leaders, political leaders. So if you're going to submit your life to Jesus as king, this is not something that you're going to get a chance to vote out of your life two or four or six years from now. If that's the scenario you want, then you're doing the same thing the Israelites did, and you're actually rejecting God as your king. But I want to say also that that kneeling to Jesus as a king, and just the idea of kneeling is kind of uncomfortable for us, isn't it? When we some churches have the kneelers that you can kneel in, but we don't have those here. Um, it's a posture that we're not familiar with or comfortable with. But kneeling to Jesus as a king is, is, it involves a great deal of surrender and a great deal of sacrifice. But it's not just about those things. The really wonderful part of this whole idea of Jesus as a king is that it's also about forgiveness and life change and being brought into something that's much bigger than yourself. Once you can get your head around the idea that there is something bigger than yourself, that's a pretty powerful thing to think about. I mentioned earlier the, uh, the Old Testament passage from the lectionary uh, was from Jeremiah 23. And the, um, the epistle reading that the lectionary schedules today on Christ the King Sunday is, is from the book of Colossians, which is the series that we did right before Jeremiah. <laughs> and I would like to say that I planned all that out, but no. That's just a happy coincidence. But um, Verses 11 through 14 of chapter 1 of Colossians say, May you be made strong with all the strength that comes from his glorious power, And may you be prepared to endure everything with patience while joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. Now listen to this. He has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. See, most of the the monarchies that we have ever been familiar with, you're either in or you're out. You're born into it. And there may be a way to become a citizen of the, the British crown at this point, but you know, generally that's not how it works. You're born with a good king. You're born with a bad king. Or you're born with no king at all. The kingdom of Christ operates differently. <laughs> He has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. St. John Chrysostom responded to this passage of the book of Colossians and said, It is a great thing indeed to have been delivered from darkness, but to have been brought into a kingdom too, is far greater. And so it's not this kingdom that you're born into, 
but it is a kingdom that you have access to, that you are welcomed to, that God draws you to and transfers you into when you place your faith in his son Jesus. And I think that it's probably the case that looking around the room, most of us here are would, would self-define as Christians, would say, yes, we are part of that kingdom. And so for all of you, this might be just a nice reminder, or maybe a not-so-nice reminder, about what the, the, what the spiritual reality is that you live in. Right? But there may also be here among us people who are not identified as Christians, who don't consider themselves part of this kingdom. Um, and I wanted to to emphasize these last two bits, the, the, the Chrysostom quotation that's behind me now and the, and the passage from Colossians that it refers to, um, to let you know that this is a kingdom that you are invited to be part of, that God calls you to, and that the submission and sacrifice that comes with Jesus uh, or with following Jesus as a king is part of the game. But what's more important is that you're grafted into God's family and into the kingdom of his son, Jesus. And so you may be sensing that, that God's spirit is, is calling you to that. And uh, if you are, I want to give you a chance uh, now. We're going to have just a minute of silent meditation to, to ponder that and to respond to it. Um, one thing that is true about when God calls us to do something or when we sense the Spirit of God leading us to something, if you can just manage to ignore it for five or ten minutes until something shiny comes along, you'll be okay. You can forget about it again for another day or week or month or maybe forever, I don't know. Um... But that is not what I would recommend. <laughs> I would recommend a response in the moment. And so take just a minute, and um, regardless of where you are on that spiritual spectrum, ponder God's invitation to be part of his kingdom, and then we'll pray together.
God, as we ponder you and our relationship to you and your son Jesus as a potential king in our lives, we are um, sometimes puzzled about how, what that means for us. And so We're, uh, we're grateful for these stories from Scripture that shed light on it. And we continue to pray and ask for your wisdom uh, to illuminate that for us. And I want to pray now for those of us in the room who've been Christians for a while now, uh, but who may not have thought about Jesus as a king and are now realizing that this may be a bigger deal than, than they expected uh, to think about submitting their entire life to Jesus. And so I pray that you would uh, provide conviction for those of us who call ourselves Christians. Show us the ways that we are rejecting you as king and show us the areas of our life that we have tucked away and failed to submit to the rule of Jesus. And give us the courage to step out and confess those and offer them to you. And I pray now also for those who don't identify as Christians, who are nonetheless sensing the call of your Holy Spirit on their lives. Sensing the pull and the desire to be part of the spiritual kingdom of Jesus our Lord. Give them courage to step out, to make that statement, to surrender their lives to you, and give them the grace that it takes to be made right with you and to continue to walk with you all the days of their life, submitting to Jesus as their king, enjoying the inheritance of the saints. and doing your work. We pray all these things in the name of Christ, who is our King. Amen. Well, hopefully many of you have um, experienced some moment with God this morning. And uh, regardless of what that is, if you are if you are someone who's now saying, I'm submitting my life to Jesus as King, uh, the, the greatest response to that that you could make and the response to his word is, is to come to his table to celebrate the Lord's Supper together with all of us broken subjects, all of us screwed up members of the court <laughs> uh, who seek to follow him as king and who, who get it wrong and who are nevertheless accepted by his grace, uh, which is represented in his broken body and his shed blood. And so I'd like to invite you now and for the rest of our service to participate in this sacrament. You can tear off a piece of the bread and dip it in either the wine or the juice um, and whatever's more appropriate for you and, and your family. And if you uh, would like to go get your children and have them participate in this with you as well, that's okay to do here. Uh, at the same time, if you prefer to take it yourself and then go down and get them, um, that's okay. You should go down and get them either way eventually. <laughs> 
<laughs> um, and the other thing I'd like to offer as we're doing communion is just uh, a chance for me to pray for you. And so I'm going to sit, um, I'll probably sit up here along the side. I'll move a chair over. And, and if you'd like to pray together, I would be happy to do that with you. Um, and we'll continue to worship in song. And uh, you can come to the table uh, as soon as you feel God's call. So continue to worship as he leads you. This has been the Artisan Church Podcast. To receive future podcasts, go to www.artisanchurch.com slash podcast or subscribe on iTunes. Thank you for listening.